So this idea has been going around in my head for years. My favourite conversations are when the person shares something about themselves you don't know. And I notice that the objects in our lives have so much meaning when you stop and think about them. Which got me wondering, what if some of the world's funniest and most interesting people brought in three treasured objects that mean the most to them and share the stories behind them, stories you've never heard before? When you said the idea, I thought, that's a really good idea. Have you done many of them yet? You're the first. Oh, right. I'm the yeah. inaugural. You're right. What a beautiful guinea pig, though. And the first item is a beautiful guinea pig <laughs> called Augustus. Long-haired, sexy as the day, forced to live with a rabbit. Why? <laughs> I'm Christian O'Connell, and this is The Stuff of Legends, today with Russell Brand. When I first met Russell, he was very different to the Russell Brand we know today. This was what, the early 2000s? He was wild, crazy, like this supernova and out of control. I didn't realise at the time that he was also an addict. And since then, what he's overcome and transformed is nothing short of incredible. You don't need me to remind you about Russell Brand, how he started out as a stand-up comedian and MTV presenter, then breaks into Hollywood, smashes into Hollywood in a typical Russell Brand way with Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek. He's written several books, worldwide sold-out stand-up tours, and become a political activist. With all that huge global success, there's still the sweet vulnerability to Russell, alongside all that amazing verbal dexterity. He's got a message at the moment. He's genuinely trying to help people, and I think that's really interesting. And just a side note, this episode does include drug themes that might be difficult for some of you. So here is Russell Brand and the stories behind the three most treasured objects from his life. And his first one? The house key to my nan's house, 143 Lily Church Road, Dagenham, Essex. Like, it's obviously someone else's house now. I'm a, I imagine they've changed their locks if they've got any sense. Um, but it was a terraced house and it always sort of smelled of nice sort of like chips. Chips cooked in a big pan of fat. And like you could like have chops there. Chops and cheese and chocolate and chips. Everything's a bit chewy. And like, like uh, the TV's always on and like it's nice. And when Bert was alive, her second husband, he would be sat there on the telly and we would watch things like Saint and Greavesy. It was nice. And the woman next door is called Jean. And then, and then some younger people moved in next door and they had a little girl called Nancy. And I fancied Nancy and we went off. And I was little, I was like 12, 10 maybe. And uh, my nan made these jam tarts one time and I think I threw them away in front of Nancy. The pastry was very thick. I still feel guilty about it. But I remember looking at that key a lot. You know how keys end up in a drawer or whatever. Yeah. When she died, I f felt like that key and the, that place and that relationship represented sanctuary. As often, I suppose, a, a, a grandparent can, you know, yeah. without the tension and friction of the relationship with a mother or father. And she was wonderful and exemplified her class and a particular time and a set of values, unconscious kindness and loving. Me being kind and compassionate, I've got to like, write a chapter from Thus Spake Zarathustra just to be nice to someone. <laughs> you know, my nan just being nice was what was ordinary to her. I went there whenever I wanted. I stayed there as long as I want. I was felt sanctuary there when I was a little boy and confused. And how old is this, Russell? How old is this object? Yeah, no, no, you go into Nan and feeling that Always. Sanctuary. But really? I reckon I can remember feeling nervous, like like for around three, and I reckon that it would have been because my mum and dad split up when I was quite young, when yeah. I was between six months and a year old. And she, my Nan, she was, I suppose, in a sense, that she 
held the idea that, oh, it's sad what's happening. She used to always say, oh, shame, isn't it? Shame. She used to just say, shame, about me as an entity. Like, but I liked it. It was sympathy. And I think she sort of knew that I was a strange little boy. And plus, she, she had two daughters and a son, and she was my dad's mum. And like, and she, I idolised um, her son, Ronnie, my dad. And he lost his dad when he was very young, like seven. And, there was, and I think that that, again, that class of women had clearly this attitude of sort of reverence to males, a very sort of old-fashioned attitude, in fact. But it had how it came across was real love you know like for me real love so from when I was a little boy about three and then becoming a little drug addict and stuff and smoking weed in the house and then doing coke in her house and all that kind of stuff and get taking like taking her pension book and claiming her pension down the post office with her um permission and then keeping it give me a little bit of it though wouldn't you well you'll get some then yes i'll try <laughs> to ensure you're taken care of so is it is this true then nan knew about what you were up to yeah, she did, because she was like, I've got older cousins, and she doesn't didn't approve of it at all. Like, even when it was just weed, she says, no, we shouldn't be doing that, Russell. It will lead to worse things. But like, uh, you know, and she was right, as it turned out. Uh, it did lead to worse things. But uh, she was, the love uh, enshrined all beyond sort of judgment. She's not a person that would ever do that tough love of like, well, oh, I'm going to have to put you at arm's length so you learn some of life's tough lessons. No, she will just continue to love until you're dead. She's like any sort of grandparent, like mm. there's sort of myths around her. There's a little blackbird that she used to feed that would come into her garden and sort of other people's cats. And if you let your dog go around there, she'd ruin that dog by giving it food that you should give to humans. And humans, she would give enough food for five humans, you know? <laughs> like, like everything, just giving, nurture, love, give, nurture, love. You know? Was she a working class now? She was very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny how uh, working class now is almost derided. They're seen as some kind of lump and mass, you know, whereas uh, I had a working class mum and dad and working class grandparents. And I have very, very similar memories, actually, to my nan and granddad and what they absolutely represented to me. And it wasn't until you started talking about it, I thought about how I used to always go around every single weekend, sit there for hours on a Saturday afternoon just watching Grandstand. Do you remember Mm. before the football came on with Mm. my granddad? And he hardly spoke because he was Irish, but a very kind of deferential... There was pictures of Jesus everywhere there. But I always felt very, very safe. You're right, because they're outside the family circle and all those tensions and dynamics that you're not even aware of as a kid. It's just calm there. Yeah, they just want to... But you had your own key. I didn't get that till I was older, and she might not even have known I had it. (laughs) (laughs) So you stole it? (laughs) A little leather fob and some sort of blue shield badge. Did you copy it in a bar of soap? Is that what happened? I I have done things with keys. I did once when I lived with an ex-girlfriend when I was about 20 when she eventually and wisely kicked me out of the house, kept a set, or took a set of keys, copied a set of keys, returned that one, and then would just go back to that house from time to time and commit what I believe is called robbery. <laughs> <laughs> or is it burglary? <laughs> burglary. <laughs> yeah. So like, that was a, like a peculiar period. But like, she, um, my grandmother, yeah, and that key, I suppose, represents and represented and represents, you know, that there is safety, there is sort of uh, warmth and care and, you know, so that that object has significance. This is Stuff of Legends today with Russell Brand. After the door key to his nan's house, I was keen to learn about his next treasured object. Where do we go now? My dad bought me this bike like uh, it was a red mountain bike it was good once in a while my dad he would come up trumps with a flash gift and this mountain bike was very good and it had a nice saddle with gel in it and uh, like it had maybe 20 gears or whatever 
I can't remember the name of it, but it was, you know, there was a period, do you remember that when you were a teenager? Post-BMX, yeah. There's the post-BMX mountain bike phase where it's important, like there's types of mountain bike names yeah. that are good. Mm. And this was one of them, but all of that, <laughs> files not found, erased, <laughs> deleted, all of that. But it was a red bike. It was a beautiful bicycle. And like when I... I left home quite young. I left home at 16 and that bike was still at the house. And then sort of, in, it would have been the first year of leaving home, living with these lads in Bermondsey Street in South East London. And Bermondsey Street now is very cool and yeah. lovely. But then it was just like, there was the stage newspaper and it was, you know, Bermondsey is sort of a, r- remains to a degree a part of London that's got a certain kind of intensity. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, Bermondsey then, it was a different kind of London. This is like 25 26, 27, 28 years ago. It was a long time ago now. And um, when I first started to take drugs and like I got into it straight away, like I sort of like from the first time I smoked weed, I just did it all the time. And every single new drug I was offered, I just enthusiastically embraced it and nothing more than... And what did it give you at that straight away age? Because a lot of people experiment when they're younger, but the way you said you took to it straight away, did it give you what you were looking for, some form of escapism to escape what was going on? Yeah, I felt like it was, I suppose it, in a sense, it did the same thing as my grandmother provided a kind of safety and warmth, even though there is a great deal of anxiety and paranoia and dread involved in drug use sometimes at least it's more controllable than the Mm. continual chaos of ordinary reality the continual chaos of relationships with human beings who can't be depended upon Mm. often so like I suppose for me even from smoking weed onwards and smoking hashes was very prevalent when I was you know first started smoking stuff I, I felt like, ah, oh, this is a sort of safe, reliable technique for managing my feelings and emotions, just quieting the voices. Yeah, so yeah, yeah quieting the voices and numbing it all down and self-medicating. Yeah, and then acid. Um, the first time I did it, I, like, I was sort of like The Doors was a big movie at that time, and I loved oh, yeah, Jim Morrison yeah. and all that. I got yeah. so into it. Me and this lad, gr- I don't know if I should be naming him really, he didn't do anything that bad. No surprises, we are bleeping out the name gr- it's not a swear word it's actually a real person we, we did acid together and I was again I was only when I think about it now at 16 I was a little boy imagine you know if you talk to a 16 year old they're actual children aren't they yeah, yeah they are they're tiny little children <laughs> with tiny little growing brains <laughs> don't dissolve the ego when you're building the ego don't dissolve your understanding of reality when you don't even actually understand reality yet. I've got to break this down what I don't know there's nothing there yet <laughs> build something up then for built house <laughs> look at the state of it it's not you don't that's not how you mix cement. <laughs> Where's the foundation? So you were dropping acid at 16. Yeah, and like, uh, yeah, which, you know, like a lot of people, I remember people do it at my school with like 13 or 40. Yes. Just, them lads. There's like, always, always that, those lads, right? <laughs> that, that the teachers were scared of. And they were always the ones that hit puberty at like 12 or 13, like a madam, massive Adam's apple, <laughs> you know, and always, always intimidated by them. Art, Jamie Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> and so what about the bike then? So let's go back to the bike. So oh, what was, happened the, was, was the bike to go and get drugs? Or yes, was it... I didn't. I, I'd got this sheet of acid, like you know, that's which is how it was. It came yeah. in those days, and like, I, I really loved it. And it led to quite a lot of problem, problems actually, because like, like another time, like they tricked the lads that I lived with because I was like the youngest. I was sixteen, they were all eighteen, and they, but they might as well have been thirty-five. They just seemed so worldly. Like, they all pretended to, that they'd done some acid because we each had some, but they, none of them had. And I did. So then they was like, over the as I was coming up on acid, they were all sort of looking at each other and laughing. And I was like, what? What was going on? And oh, none of us did any. And I was like, oh, bloody hell. Like, terrifying. It was very terrifying, especially as I'm a man who in 
his 40s can't cope in a flotation tank <laughs> doing acid when I'm 16. And then, so, but like, anyway, like, I couldn't pay for that acid. It wouldn't have been much, I don't know, 50 quid or something, I don't know. But like, uh, I said to Grad, let's go back to Grays in Essex and I'll get my bike and then you can give me like some sheets of acid and I'll swap my bike for it. So we did some acid and then got the train from Fenchurch Street back to my mum's house in Grey's Essex. And my mum had people over, um, Jan and Derek, and they were having like dinner on these... (laughs) But the acid is coming on. And like my mum and dad, my mum and her boyfriend, boyfriend Colin perhaps in Colin had Jan and Derek round right and they'd they'd got these new dinner plates right they were sort of Marks and Spencers I believe but they had like this brown pattern in the middle right but they were really similar to the plates that we used to add but a bit different and I was on acid I was going why are these plates different what's going on with these plates though he was like a rep from an holiday camp hello lovely to meet you how's it going on yes he could handle acid really easily oh yeah nice to meet you jan derrick was what are you tripping doing? out about the plates i'm freaking out about the plates he didn't give a <laughs> shut up shut up about the plates <laughs> oh they're different that's not the right pattern what's happening to reality it's all crumbling apart i knew i should have built an ego before i dismantled it and then i started like when i went to get the bicycle I started crying because I thought, oh, this is a symbol of my childhood and I'm exchanging Even it. Even in, in all that kind of alter, uh, altered state, I think especially because of it. Yeah. I was experiencing life on a mythic level. A strange of... Jack and the Beanstalk that you were trading in. <laughs> exactly. It felt like I could see the uh, deep, essential, archetypal meanings that lurked behind the apparently mundane exchanges of every day. What are the energies that inform the decisions that we make? So I was very upset about... <laughs> changing this like swapping this bicycle for drugs i was upset and that and like but curiously on this trip i made the decision that i was going to go to drama school i said like, i thought i've got to train i've got to train to become an actor that's what i've got to do that's and had what you I done any do. of that previously at school as a teenager i'd done i'd had already been to italia conti for a year oh, right. which is a bit more stage schooly yeah. but I, that, I made the decision to go to like oh, i'm gonna audition for proper drama school serious ones where you cry and get naked and that's exactly what they did do at drama center because <laughs> uh, that's a serious play isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's a theme that i've continued throughout my life <laughs> and I, um so like i um Got that like bicycle. I got that bicycle, and I told God, "I've reevaluated my life." He goes, "Russell, you do not reevaluate your life on a trip." Like he had a lot of. He was a real sort of intense Sherpa of a person with clear views of what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And to, in all fairness, he was much better equipped to handle the mad undulation and vicissitudes of life on acid. He handled it with a, a plomb. Like, I think my mum would have no, had no idea that he was on drugs with me. I was like a sort of a short film made by the government about a little boy doing drugs. <laughs> Russell's been taking acid. <laughs> Russell's life was in front of him once. But this that... is his childhood bike. He's going to pawn for drugs. <laughs> yeah, I was like a leaflet. Come Don't to... be Russell. <laughs> Don't be a mug. This is the stuff of legends with Russell Brand's most treasured objects. We've heard about his nan's house key, the red bike, and now the last one. What is his final object? Well, the third object, it's wrong to objectify because he's a living entity, a feline mammal, Morrissey, my cat. 
He's a black and white cat like a little gentleman. He's been immortalised by uh, the beloved TV comic Noel Fielding who stayed with me for a little while and painted Morrissey. And so a few people have painted Morrissey. He's like quite a well-respected cat. He was a real little killer when he was younger when we lived in Gospel Oak. And so I'm going to have my cat Morrissey because he's sort of prevalent in my life at the moment. And like when he, he got ill... Lately, he's still currently alive, thankfully. You know, they have this totemic power pets, don't they? They, they become, again, I suppose, like, my, like with my grandmother, I suppose these objects, and I suppose the reason that this, I think, is a great idea of a podcast is we imbue objects with all manner of qualities. We need to have a, an idea of ceremony because otherwise the unseen, invisible world has is impermanent and inaccessible and we feel so remote here. So unless objects start to signify something, start to mean something, and they do throughout most religions, religious faiths yeah. and even in secular faiths there are sort of sacred objects that mace in the houses of parliament objects are mm. continually imbued there's things you just like you know or like you know even in a sort of a secular nation like britain if someone desecrates that cenotaph people aren't oh, don't matter it's just an object yeah. people are like hey that's the war dead <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah you're right yeah there's it's front page news it's yeah, front page it's news, news even when them top gear lads yeah. were like, doing donuts around it whatever Right, which you know, yeah. So because we acknowledge that there is meaning, there the objects are imbued with meaning. Now Morrissey, like I got that cat when I was twenty-seven years old, when I just was clean, just clean from drugs. I was, I was young. I was going to have a young woman. She lived on Broadwater Farm Estate, Tottenham, and she bought me a kitten as a pet on Christmas Eve. And I really wanted a cat. You know, when you first clean from drugs, it's sort of nice to have something like to love and to be there and he was such a cute little kitten Morrissey and um you know he was sort of and because my life has changed a lot you know now I'm married I have two kids and I've lived in America and I've been through other marriages and other relationships this cat's lived in I think I counted up once that he'd lived in like 10 or 12 houses <laughs> like you know and he's been back and forth to Los Angeles this cat and I lived a very what do I want to say so do like, you always leave the relationship with the cat has anyone ever said oh no I've got to touch that cat now Russell I want the cat have they always said hold on a minute Christian you can't switch owners like I've gone into the relationship with the cat you can't say I have developed a great affinity with this cat he's mine now you can't so when you go that. I'm leaving that's it Moz, come with me, and he yeah, jumps never in. never a question. Right, okay. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> like, look one way, because he's a cat. Sometimes they have conflicting loyalties very easily, whoever's going to feed them. I think Morrissey is a disloyal cat like all cats. Yes. <laughs> no, no question. <laughs> but but and I, I'm sure if I, you know, he would eat me if I died. He's tried eating bits of me when I've just been sat still. Like, But like... Um, uh, one relationship I had with someone I was very much in love with, we had, like, like she had a German Shepherd, white German Shepherd, but she had that before... Me and in fact, she it was her kid's dog, but that dog loved me like we bonded me and that dog. And I didn't even really try particularly hard in the way that I often do to make dogs or children love me in order to seem like I'm a really great guy. I didn't make any effort at all, and the dog just loved me. And when that relationship ended, like you know, I come to terms with human relationships not working, I've got enough experience of it, yeah. But like letting go of that dog, oh my god, I had to sort of just shut it in a room in my mind and never go in there again. I couldn't... <laughs> if I incredible. see pictures of that dog now... like It would set you off. 
Yeah, like because he, he he came on Jonathan Ross with me. Um, oh, I remember that. We were promoting a film together. <laughs> <laughs> it was his film actually. I just went along for the ride. Um, like and yeah, he was such a good dog. Yeah, I remember he just came out and bounded and sat on the sofa. Not like my dog Bear now, who's also a German Shepherd. That you know, like, in a sense, symbolically to represent. Oh, I live in domesticity. I'm a family man with a family dog. That dog's got all the attributes and traits that. I had when I was about 20 just a psychopath lunatic dog that I spent all my time negotiating <laughs> with and sending to high class training. Why do you choose a German Shepherd? I've got a German Shepherd they're great dogs. I Like my dad had one. Right. I, I always wanted one as a kid and I had a little spring spaniel. Here. Yeah. Bought her out. They're a big part of the family. The kids said one thing okay if we're going to move to Australia we're really excited um, Nisha the, the Shepherd she has to come with us and yeah. I was like yeah they wanted that little bit of comfort in a in a crazy new life. That was really important. They wanted to come home from new schools, experience what they were experiencing. They just wanted to know their dog was still going to be there. And they're very sensitive animals. They're big dogs, German Shepherd mm. dogs. But I'm surprised you went for a dog like that. I love them. They're great, aren't they? Yeah, they're my, yeah, he, uh, yeah, uh, they're a lovely breed. I think they look like a proper dog. He's a laugh. I, you know, Does um, yours have eyebrows? Mine has eyebrows. I find it a lot easier to communicate with her. Yeah, my boy Bear... He's like, there's a man looking at you <laughs> from inside. Him. <laughs> Hello. Yes. You're not back on the acid, are you? I've taken a little bit to get through this interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but he, um, he's um, like, when I came back, I went back to England to see Morrissey because he was like, uh, you know, I have the good fortune of being friends with Noel Fitzpatrick, super vet off the telly, who's a brilliant, brilliant oh, wow. vet. Yeah, he's amazing. And like, when anything happens to the animals, it seems that something's always happening to the bloody animals. Like, I like I call him up and go, "Can you help?" Right. And so he took our cat Morrissey because Morrissey was having kidney failure, and one of his colleagues there oh, operated and fitted a stent. Morrissey's like sixteen years old, you know. But they don't see it in that way. They don't go like they treat it the same like a human. They don't go, yeah. "Well." He's had a good life. Fuck him. <laughs> like, no, it's your, like, you love him. Like, keep the, you know, we'll do everything that we can. Yeah. And, like, so we, like, so we've, you know, had an operation. And I, like, me and my wife talked about it. And I goes, I think I have to go back. You know, this operation, it's going to be really sort of difficult for him. And I feel like, out of honour, like, I have to acknowledge that this cat, means a lot to me and he reaches back into a time in my life where I had nothing I lived in a like a, a not even a one bedroom flat one room flat when I got that cat and he's been for all of this stuff he's witnessed all of these things he's been present for all of this and now I feel like he somehow ferried me mm. to being a father with two children yeah. and like, so That's now beautiful. thank you so now that he's sick I feel like oh you can't like you have to live with honour and isn't it amazing how you just come out of therapy, you're in a very raw, I can only guess, and you know, I hope I'm not speaking for you, but kind of very embryonic, yeah. raw, who am I now? Who am I going to be? And you get this lovely little cat that you've got to care for. So you came for yourself as well. But it's beautiful how caring for the cat must have a, sen a sense of caring for yourself as well. Yeah, that's right. And it's sort of a, like a new start. It's nice to... It's fresh. Yeah, a real escape from sort of childhood, I suppose. A lot of, like, I think addiction is an attempt to sort of get a control of your life, curiously, even though it is a very destructive impulse. So post-addiction, when you're entering into the world, it's really uncertain. You're right, it is very reassuring and beautiful to have a relationship that is reliable, a relationship with an animal, you know, and he sort of really fulfilled that function. It was sad to go see him the other day in effect, you know, now they have to shave him up all dramatically mm. and he's got drips in him and all this kind of stuff. But you see the spirit in them, mm. you know, these animals, you know, what like life wants to carry on. There is this will to live, you know.
And how is Moz now? Can we get an update? He's doing pretty good. Like, they, there's some sort of presence of, uh, there's a word that sounds a bit like creatines or something, which is, it means that like, the amount of that is a way of evaluating how well the kidney is functioning. It's not dropped as much as they would have liked. And the fact is, is that kidney failure is a uh, prominent thing for older cats yeah. anyway. So like, but like, he's, he's improving and he's doing, he's doing all right, you know, thankfully. What moment in your life has Morrissey witnessed that no one else has seen or even knows about? I don't know about that no one else has seen, but like he's certainly, I mean, he's just been there for 16 years. Like he's been present in a lot of interesting situations. I've seen, like, I remember when I first saw Morrissey with famous people thinking, wow, there's Morrissey on a famous person's legs. You know, like it was sort of really like extraordinary. Like reality's gone all broken now. That's the cat Morrissey. I mean, also even when, when I do remember when I interviewed Ed Miliband before the election yeah. in 2015, I've got footage of Ed Miliband coming up the stairs and Morrissey just gone, who's this mug? <laughs> sort of traipsing by him. So he's been there and like, it's sort of, he's been there for everything and he's just a cat and he doesn't, you know, like any cat, care about none of it. I feel like one day he's going to have his sort of showbiz. He's going to send his story behind your back about my life with Russell Brand. He's got some good yarns, that cat. <laughs> he's been present for some interesting moments. Big thanks to today's legend, Russell Brand. When I asked Russell to do this podcast, he had this wonderful phrase, as Russell would, objects hum with meaning. It was a genuine joy to chat with him and to find out more. And it's a chat made even more special because since we spoke, sadly, Russell's cat Morrissey is no longer with us. However, I still think it will go down as one of Russell's greatest loves of his life, of many loves. We had this big hug afterwards, and I thanked him for being so open and honest. Russell sometimes strikes me, you'll probably like this too, he's almost like superhuman in his shimmering ultra-confidence and speed of thought. But this chat reminded me of the sweet tenderness that lies within him and all of us. I hope you enjoyed it too. If this episode has brought up anything tricky for you, please get in touch with Beyond Blue in Australia at beyondblue.org.au. They do amazing work. If you're elsewhere in the world, you can find support at checkpointorg.com slash global. Make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming legends. Follow the show for free on iHeartRadio or whatever podcast app you're listening to me on. I'm Christian O'Connell, and until next time, this is The Stuff of Legends. That was great. Thank you so much. It's a lovely was podcast. Was that spellbinding? I found it was so interesting. I think it's really good. I'd be really interested. I hope so. to, I'll listen to this podcast. It's the sort of thing I would like. I like how you do interviews. You're a laugh, but you're serious and get it into people. You always have done. I'd be like, I'm like example, you in that. I'm, I want to find out answers. I want to know. What do you know that I might be able to make sense of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have you that. Know, right. You know. <laughs> 